All right, we come now in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of the Word of God. And I hope you're excited about that this morning, ready to hear from the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3. And let's pray again as the church of Jesus and let's ask for God's help this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come today in Jesus' name, and we pray to you what we just sang to you, Lord. We ask, God, that you would be our God in this world, Lord, our shepherd king who guides us through the wilderness of this world. Lord, we ask that you would give us what we need, and Lord, we know that you know what we need. God, give us what is needed. God, we pray that you would guide us by your word in this world. And so we ask for your help this morning. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead us, Lord, to your holy hill, to the place of your dwelling today. God, speak to us by your word. We love your voice, Lord. We love your word. We long to hear from you. God, help us to hear it this morning with faith and with obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 3. Now for the reading of the Word of God this morning, I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to stand and we're going to read God's Word together. So if you're able to do that, I'd ask you to do that now. This is the Word of God to the church. Verse 12. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jared, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Makathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath-Jar, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth as far as the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. Verse 18, and I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives, you, gives rest to your brothers as to you. 
And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives to them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I have commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah, lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people. And he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. Now our passage today brings this historical section in the book of Deuteronomy to a conclusion. In in the past several weeks we've been hearing and studying Moses is reminding the people of God of what has happened up to this point. He's recounting the history of Israel all the way to the shores of the Jordan just prior to them crossing the Jordan to fight in Canaan for the promised land. And now at this point in the book of Deuteronomy, that history is being recounted, that's winding down, and Moses is about to make a pivot in this book and begin preaching his final sermon to Israel. And that's going to be the rest of Deuteronomy. I want you to notice some of the time markers in our text. You see the the words at that time repeated about four times in our passage. Verse 12, at that time. Verse 18, at that time. Verse 21, at that time. Verse 23, at that time. He's recounting the history and then notice what he does in chapter 4 verse 1. He says, and now. At that time God did this. At that time God said this. At that time this happened and then he turns the corner and now and he begins to preach to the people of God on the plains of Moab prior to entering the the promised land. And so what Deuteronomy is, the whole book is preparation for the people of God to enter into Canaan. Um, It's God's word to the people, the second generation prior to them entering into the promised land. And so this specific passage is preparing them especially for war in Canaan. And so that's going to be our focus this morning, preparing for battle in Canaan. Now, just the fact that Moses is doing this, rehearsing the history, 
in this section is a reminder to all of us that God's people need reminders. Okay? God's people need to be reminded often of what God has done and what God has said. And we see that theme running through the book of Deuteronomy. The word remember is repeated 14 times in this book. The command to remember something. I'll give you just a few examples of these. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 18. You shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Remember it. Don't forget it, people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. This will be something that we do weekly as we gather together as the church of Jesus until our God raises us from the dead. Part of the liturgy of the Christian life is to gather together and remember what God has done and remember what God has said. This is one of, this is one of the ways until we're raised from the dead that we gather strength to walk through the wilderness of this world. Now think about it for just a moment. Why are God's people called to look backwards? If we're supposed to march forward and obey God in the future, in the present and the future, why would we ever look backwards? And one of the ways that we can answer this is because God never changes. Okay? One of the ways that faith works is you get a glimpse of who God is in the past, how God has acted in the past, what God has said in the past. And the way this works is because God never changes, if I get a glimpse of who God is in the past, that is who God will be forever to his people. And so God's people remember in fact, the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we remember the words and the mighty deeds of our God. Now our passage, you could summarize it, just the structure of it. There are three historical reminders that Moses gives to the nation. And I'll mention just the plain sense of these three as we read and work through this passage. And, and, you, and they're divided by the paragraph. So first we have in verses 12 through verse 17, we have this historical reminder of how uh, the land uh, beyond the Jordan called the Transjordan across the Jordan, the, the land outside of Canaan, was allocated to, to several tribes, two and a half tribes, as a portion of the promised land, their inheritance. And so we had the recounting of this history. Now there's a much fuller version of it in Numbers chapter 32, and you're welcome to, to read and, and study through that passage on your own. But just on the face of it, this is the reminder, okay? Now, this is connected to what we heard last week. This land that was given to Reuben, to Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 
Last week, Ryan you know, uh, uh, preached that passage to us that God's people, with God's help, they subjugated and destroyed the kingdom of Sihon and the kingdom of Og, these, these enemies of the people of God that oppose the people of God. Well, what happens in our passage is not only does God defeat those kings and their kingdoms, he takes their land and he gives it to his people. And that's what's happening in verse 12 and verse 17. The, 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 um, the tribe of Reuben and Gad are given the land that once belonged to Sihon. You can see that in verse 12 from Aror to the half of Gilead. That's Reuben and Gad's now, not Sihon's any longer. And then the, the half-tribe of Manasseh is given the land that once belonged to Og. And you see this in verse 13, from half of Gilead to Basham. And so we have this reminder. This is meant to encourage the people of God. You see it again in verse 13, this mention of that word rephium. And we've been seeing that all through chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, that there were giants at one time in this land. God took them out and gave the land that belonged to the giants to his people. It's meant to encourage the people of God. That the God of Israel took the land from giants, from the rephium, and gave it to his people. So it's this historical recounting and the allocation of the land beyond the Jordan. That's the first scene. The second historical scene is in the second paragraph. We have God's command to these Transjordan tribes, the tribes that said, you know what, we'll take our inheritance here. We don't even need to cross the Jordan to go into Canaan. We'll take this as our inheritance. Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh. The second historical reminder is that God charges these two and a half tribes that you got to cross the Jordan with the rest of the nation and you got to fight to the finish with the nation until all of Israel receives their rest. And you see this in verse 18 through verse 20. God commands these Transjordan tribes. They've already received their inheritance, but they got to fight to the rest of the nation receives their inheritance. Here's how he says it in verse 20. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives to them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession. And so Israel is not just this loose confederation of tribes, okay? Uh, that's the, the verse 18 and verse 20 showed us there's a solidarity to, they're a nation, Okay? They, they, uh, the tribes go to war together. God's in the business of establishing them as a nation, giving rest to the whole nation. And so God's intention here is corporate, okay? The whole nation, not dealing with just uh, uh, a, a couple of different tribes. The whole nation is to enter their inheritance, to enter their rest. So that's the second scene, the historical reminder. The third is in verses 21 through 29, we have the historical reminder that the man of God, Moses, has been replaced by his successor, Joshua. And you see this in verses 23, beginning of verse 23, Moses begins to plead with God that he would enter into the promised land. Now think about that for just a moment. 
He had spent the majority of his life devoted to bringing this people to this land. And he pleads with God, God, please let me enter into that land. Now, the way he asked this, it seems to indicate that he already knows he's been barred from the promised land. And he's asking God for a, a, a change of circumstances. Maybe God will change his mind and allow Moses, his servant, to set foot in Canaan. But verse 26 shows us God refuses the prayer of Moses. And he says this, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So God says no to his servant, but he does allow Moses to see the promised land from atop. Verse 27, Mount Pisgah. He sees it with his eyes, but he's not able to enter into the land. Instead, Moses is to turn his attention and begin to encourage his successor, Joshua. Encourage him. Verse 28, charge him. This is why Moses is encouraged to, to, uh, charged to encourage Joshua. And it's also why Joshua, in verse 22, is charged to be a fearless leader in Israel. And so those, those are the three scenes in our passage. The land that was distributed beyond the river. Okay? The tribes have to cross the Jordan and fight with the rest of the nation. And Joshua is replacing Moses to lead the people of God into the promised land. Now, what I want you to know is that each of those three historical scenes is designed to prepare Israel to enter Canaan. Specifically, it's designed to prepare Israel to fight once they enter into Canaan, to take possession of the land. Now, we're going to do a pause, and we're going to do an aside. Okay, so here's the aside. What does that have to do with us? I mean, man, that's God's word. That's what God did for Israel. What could that, as you know, specific as that historical situation is, what could that ever have to do with us? Okay. Uh, last I checked, we are the New Testament church, and we are not charged to conquer Canaan with the sword. Okay, true. But it would be a great mistake to conclude that the history of Israel does not apply to the Christian church. That's the error of what's called dispensationalism. That what God did over here doesn't have anything to do with us. And so I want to draw your attention to some words in 1 Corinthians 10. This is just a reminder of how we read the Bible. The Bible actually tells us how we read the Bible. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the whole history of Israel is an example for the church. Okay? It was written for us. It's not just God's word to them, it's God's word to us. So here's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he says this. Now these things, now if you go back and read that paragraph, he just lists off a bunch of happenings of uh, this generation, the wilderness generation. These things happened, he says, to them as an example for us. Okay? Happened to them, but it's our example. 
Now, one interesting thing is that word example is the Greek word tupos, which is the word type or typology. And so the claim here, okay, or the instruction here is the whole history of Israel serves as a type or instruction for the people of God, for the church. In other words, it's not just what happened over here completely disconnected from me. It's an example for me. What God did with Israel is an example for us. The history of Israel is a type for us. In other words, we don't read the Bible in this one-to-one way that it applies exactly to us like it applied to Israel. Again, we don't go conquer Canaan with the sword, but there's a correspondence there. There's a similarity there. There are principles there that in the same way it went with Israel, so goes with us. The history of Israel is an example for the church. Now, another reminder, you know, is... This warfare language that we see in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Joshua, you know, it doesn't carry over in the sense that the church literally physically goes to war, but it doesn't follow that the warfare language goes away in the Bible, okay? It actually is broadened out to many other things. And so as we read our New Testament as lovers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, one of the things we find is this military language all over the New Testament. These military metaphors, these these military circumstances, military charges even, that are given to the people of God. I want to remind you of just a few of these. We are soldiers for Christ. You ever thought about yourself like that as a Christian? You are a soldier enlisted in an army with Jesus as your conquering king. We are charged to serve that king and his kingdom all the days of our life. To not get distracted by other things. To be about our king's business. We're charged to make war on indwelling sin. We're even charged to cut things and stab stuff. Put to death what is earthly in you. Cut off your hand. We're to fight sin in this military zeal. We're charged to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude 3. Every Christian is a contender. Every Christian is a fighter for sound doctrine. We're also charged to take every thought captive. We're to engage in a battle, even with our minds, to make our thoughts submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're charged to put on the full armor of God, to make our stand in the resources that God has provided for us against the devil and against all of his schemes. That's Ephesians chapter 6. Jesus promised us that he would build a church and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. That there would be this military conquest of King Jesus to all nations, unstoppable mission. And he charges his church to make disciples of all nations. And he he reminds us that the one with all authority is with us all the days of our life as we pursue that mission. 
And so every Christian is a soldier for Christ. And what do we do? And we do all of this with a sword, but it's not the same kind of sword. Ephesians chapter 6 calls the sword of the Spirit the Word of God. Every Christian is a soldier for Christ, and they ought to be swinging a sword all the time. So we have this Christian warfare that we are to engage in. Now, one of the things, this would be a really good way to spend a portion of your Sunday afternoon. J.C. Ryle has a chapter called The Fight in his, in his no, uh, uh, famous book, Holiness, by J.C. Ryle. It's free on the internet. You could Google that, and you could read this chapter this afternoon. How awesome would that be? Okay. The Fight uh, in, in the book called Holiness. Now, J.C. Ryle gives us this warning in this arena of Christian warfare and Christian fighting. I want you to listen to it. He says... Let us take care that our personal religion is real, genuine, and true. The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work. They amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go, go through religious services. But of the great spiritual warfare, its watchings, its strugglings, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests, of all this they appear to know nothing at all. Let us take care, brothers, that this is not the case with us. And so I want you to know this morning that God, this is God's word to Israel, Deuteronomy 3. But don't be deceived, this is God's word to us. And more personally, this is God's word to you. Not just to Israel, but to the church. And this is a reminder to us that we have battles to fight for the Lord. And just as this text exhorted Israel to courageous battle in the promised land, this text exhorts Christians how to fight our enemies. And I have seven exhortations for us in this realm. Uh, Deuteronomy 3, teach us, Lord, how to fight. And we'll walk through each of these together this morning. Number one. We are to fight as Christians because God has already crushed our enemies. And you see this in verses 12 and 13. Remember that reference in verse 13 to the Rephaim, the giants. God's people are reminded before they enter into conquest in Canaan. Look at what God has already done. Remember Sihon? Gone. Remember Og? Gone. Remember all the Rephaim? They're gone. They're dispossessed. Not only did God defeat them, he took their land and he gave, them, gave it to you. God had already conquered their enemies. And in the same way, the gospel declares that Jesus has already, listen, already disarmed rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's done. That's Colossians chapter 2. 
There are enemies that have already been destroyed for the Christian. Think about King Sin in, in Romans 6 that we talked about just several weeks ago. What happened with King Sin? Jesus set us free through His mighty power from slavery to sin. He's already conquered our strong enemies. Jesus is the mighty warrior who has already gone before us in battle. One of the ways that we can praise Christ is through a parable that Jesus tells. He tells a parable of a strong man. The only way to take the strong man stuff is to bind the strong man. You see this in Mark chapter 3. And I want to remind us of that this morning. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. And that parable is about Jesus and the devil and the church. Jesus came... He's stronger than the strong man. He bound the strong man and he took his stuff. He bound the devil with his death, with his resurrection, and he took his stuff. That's you, church, and he made you trophies of grace. You once belonged to the devil. Jesus took you from the devil, and you've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and you've been brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's Jesus. He's already done that for his church and so just like God tells Joshua in verse 21 this morning he says this your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done I want to remind you of what your eyes have seen you have seen the gospel Christian you know the gospel and the exhortation this morning is to believe it your eyes have seen it believe what God has done Believe who Jesus is for his people. And so number one, we're to fight because God has already crushed some of our enemies, even giants. Think about it this morning. We don't enter into conflict in any warfare, in any difficulty, as though we're just jumping in the battle at square one. Every battlefield we will ever stand on, Jesus has gone before us. Our mighty, victorious, conquering King. This is why Christian warfare is so different. It's a fight of faith. It's a fight of faith. Number two. Fight because you have already received some of your inheritance. And in our text you see this in verse 12 and 13. God had already given two and a half tribes their land. It's not that they enter into Can Canaan and had to take it all. <laughs> they just had to finish off what God had already started. God had already given them a foretaste of victory. Or you could say it like this, a down payment of their inheritance. And it goes the same way with us. We are not called to fight without assurances of victory or encouragement that God is going to see it all the way to the end. We have a parallel here in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul tells us that every Christian has already received a portion of their inheritance. He tells us that from the moment we believe, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Listen, as a guarantee of our inheritance. 
In other words, the very moment we believed God gave us something, what did God give us? Himself. We got God. From the moment we first trusted, God sealed us with the third person of the Trinity. We got God. And what does that mean for us? That's a down payment. That's a guarantee. More is coming. More of God. More blessing from God. We ought to fight like that as Christians. Not that all the good stuff is at the very end, but we've already received a portion of what God has promised us. You know, one of the things about being a pastor is you are exposed more so than others to different kinds of difficulties that people face in the church. Difficulties of all kinds. And you see your brothers and sisters pinned down in difficult circumstances, fighting sin, fighting certain situations. Somebody's opposing them. They're discouraged. They're ready to give up. And you see it. And one of the things that's so easy when we face those difficulties is to face them with the wrong way of thinking. That it's me and I'm all by myself with my problems. I feel so helpless. But this, this reminds us, this down payment, this foretaste of victory, it reminds us we are not by ourselves. And we never will be. Every difficulty that we will ever face as Christians, God has gone before us. The gospel has gone before us. Not only will we see God on the final day, we have God right now as Christians. Do you understand? That means in every difficulty, on every battlefield that you will ever face, you do it with God. You don't do it like the world. And so trust Him. And fight with faith. Fight believing the promises of God. You've already got some of your inheritance. Believe it. Number three. Fight until the task is finished. One of the things in that second paragraph beginning in verse 18 that Moses charges the Transjordan tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the Manassite, the uh, half-tribe of Manasseh, is he tells them, you got to cross Jordan and you got to fight with everybody else until God gives rest to the whole nation. Verse 20. And there's a principle here that we cannot stop fighting the fight of faith until we receive what God has promised. In other words, think about what verse 18 through 20 doesn't say. Go fight them for a little while, and once they make some headway and defeat a few enemies, then you can go back over the river. Verse 20, you don't go back until everybody receives the rest that God has promised them. Fight till it's done. Fight till it's finished. And this means one of the things that the Apostle Paul tells us about our enemies is he names our last enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, which means that Christians will be fighting until the last enemy is destroyed. It's just a long way of saying we got to fight until we're dead. Our whole life long. We can't be lured into this way of thinking that I'll follow Jesus for a little while. 
I'll keep God's commandments for a little while. I'll fight the fight of faith for a little while. How many people do you know that started and didn't finish the Christian life? How many people do you know? We are charged to follow Jesus to the very end, to persevere to the end, to finish the job, to finish the fight. In fact, we ought to make it our aim to say what Paul says at the end of his life. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I want to exhort you this morning, finish your race Don't fight for a little while and run for a little while and then stop. Finish your race. Follow Jesus to the very end. Another way you can say this is don't stop swinging your sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Don't stop taking up the shield of faith. J.C. Ryle again reminds us, that the fight that we engage in, it's perpetual, okay? It's not like I did it, you know, one time when I was 20 and I never have to do it again as a Christian. It's a perpetual, sick, sick, uh, sick, circular uh, battle that we engage in. I'll quote him at length here. He says this, It is a fight of perpetual necessity, It admits no breathing time, no armistice, no truce on weekends as well as weekdays, in private as well as in public, at home as well as abroad, and little things like managing your tongue as well as great things like the government of kingdoms, the Christian's warfare must unceasingly go on. The foe we have to do with keeps no holidays, never slumbers, never sleeps. So long as we have breath in our bodies, we must keep on our armor and remember we are on enemy's ground. Even on the brink of the Jordan, said a dying man, I find Satan nibbling at my heels. We must fight until we die. Older saints, I want to exhort you this morning to old age and gray hairs, swing your sword Fight the fight of faith. Don't give up. Fight to the very end. Number four, fight for your brothers and sisters. You see this also in verse 18. God commands these Transjordan tribes to go to war with all the other tribes. Now, think of how easy it would have been to think this way. You know what? I'm good. I got my inheritance. Got a lot of livestock. Things are looking pretty good for me. I don't know if you heard about it, but there's armies over there. People die in war. I think I'm doing good right here. I think I'll take my inheritance and the best of luck to the rest of Israel. I want you to see in verse 18 that that call to fight with the rest of the nation It was a call to selflessly love the people of God. Not only about me receiving my inheritance, but all of God's people receiving their inheritance too. Not just about me making it to the end, receiving what God has promised me, but about us making it to the end and us receiving what God has promised us. These Transjordan tribes, they had their personal comfort had to be laid aside. 
in order to see God glorified in all of Israel and the whole nation. And we have to have this corporate mindset for the Christian life, this corporate longing, not only to see God glorified in my life, but to be God to see God glorified in all of his people corporately. Paul prays this way, teaches us to pray this way. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says this, To him, God, be glory in the church. Be glory in the church. That ought to be a concern for you as a follower of Jesus, that Jesus Christ be glorified not only in your life, but in his church. In other words, it's bigger than just you. It's bigger than just you and Jesus and you and Jesus living out the Christian life in this world. It's us and Christ. It's a, there's a corporate aspect to the Christian life. Christ is to be formed in his people. The Bible says that Jesus is supposed to be the firstborn of many brothers, that God is going to be glorified in the church. And so this text... Not explicitly, but implicitly, it caused the people of God to repent of selfishness and individualism and to take up that corporate mindset that longs to see God glorified in your brothers and sisters, that longs to see your brothers and sisters receive their inheritance. This is the one, one of the things that every one of us, every member of Grace Community Church ought to be striving for, laboring for, is that our brothers and sisters make it to the end. Christian perseverance has been said that it's a community project, that the church of Jesus is a means of grace in our life that Jesus uses as a tool to present us blameless before God on the final day, trusting in Christ. Here's how the book of Hebrews says it. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin i heard uh, mark dever say one time that he was tempted to preach church membership from the book of habakkuk he could find it anywhere he loves it so much and I don't think it's a, it's, it's, it's a twist of what we see here to make this application. Every follower of Jesus is to find themselves living out the Christian life in the context of a local church, exhorting other Christians, responsible for other Christians. Listen, what I mean, joining a local church, member of, not dating the local church, not driving into a service for an hour on Sundays, but committed to the people of God. You are your brother's keeper you're watching over them you want to see them uh, follow Jesus to the very end exhorting your brothers as long as it is called today that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin number five we should fight for our inheritance with faith and without fear and you see this in what God commands Joshua in verse 21 and 22 he tells them, remember what your eyes have seen. 
And then he says, do not fear. Christian, we are to believe God and we are to live fearlessly in this world. And I do want to remind you of that, that do not fear is a commandment in the Bible. And we ought to treat it like that. We ought to treat fear as sin. God, help me not to be fearful. Help, me to, help my faith to be strengthened in this moment. I want to trust you. We ought to fight with faith and without fear. Now think about what this section of Deuteronomy is not. People of God are being prepared to go to war in Canaan, but this is not a pep rally. Moses is not the hype man trying to fire up the people of God for a brawl. We're going to take them on. He's not doing that because this is a different kind of battle. We, this is essentially a fight of faith. We fight the fight of faith. It's not pumping up stuff like the world, which is why in this passage, Moses is a preacher, not a hype man, a preacher of the word of God. Given the nation the deeds of the Lord, the words of the living God. And he calls Joshua to remember in verse 21, Your eyes have seen what the Lord your God has done. And faith always works like this. It's always fed by the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the biblical prescription to kill fear. How do you kill it? Everybody can identify it, or you ought to be able to, but how do you get rid of it? The only way is that it has to be displaced with the Word of God. Trust in the Word of God. We kill it with the sword of the Spirit. And so one of the things that you, you can just mark this down, you can just mark this down for your whole life. Forgetful Christians will be weak Christians. Christians that are strong in the Lord always, without exception, have drawn that strength from the Word of God. Which means if we want to fight with faith and we want to fight without fear, we need the Word of God. We need to be nourished by the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God, loving the Word of God, remembering the Word of God, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. It's foundational for the Christian life. Number six, fight because God fights for you. In verse 22, God tells Joshua these words. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. I don't know a more encouraging thing in any battle that we will ever face, any difficulty, any circumstances, that I'm not by myself. And not only is God here in the sense like he's beside me, pat me on the shoulder, I know it's really hard for you, I'm here. He's fighting for his people. He says that in verse 22, it is the Lord your God who fights for you. He's with us fighting for us in these battles. No matter what they are, battles with our flesh, battles with the devil, battles with the world, battles with false teachers, battles with false teaching, battles for the sake of the gospel, battles to trust God in suffering. God is with his people. God fights for his people, which means... Good news for every Christian, 
Because God is fighting for His people, this means that we have strength that far exceeds our own natural capabilities and our own natural resources. We have that strength. Why? Because God fights for us. But you say, I feel so weak, and I feel it too. But I feel so weak in these battles. And listen to how God's word responds to that way of thinking. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Trust him. Trust the Lord. Number seven. Fight because your mediator is better than Moses. In that last paragraph, we see that Moses asked, pled with the Lord that he would enter into Canaan, spend his whole life leading the people of God to this moment. But God said no. And he was not permitted to enter the promised land because of his sin against God. In fact, in our text, he says in verse 26, the Lord was angry with me. God was angry with Moses because of Moses' sin, and God replaced him with Joshua to finish the job. And I want you to think about how different our circumstances are in Christ Jesus. That was the old covenant mediator, Moses. And he couldn't even enter the promised land on the basis of his own righteousness. He died outside of Canaan. He was faithful, but he wasn't perfect. I want you to think about how different it is for us. In the new covenant, in Jesus Christ, we have a new mediator. We have a perfect mediator who will not, cannot fail to bring his people all the way into the promised land. And think about it. He wasn't barred from entry. Jesus didn't get right up to the gates of glory and have to plead plea with God in this reluctant way, Lord, please let me in. No, he actually entered into glory with the word of command. With these words ringing out in heaven in Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. He belonged there. Nothing could keep him out of the presence of God. He was the Holy One without sin, without spot, without blame. And those words that God heard that Moses heard from God, that God was angry with Moses because of his sin. Jesus will never hear those words because Jesus doesn't have any personal sin that would draw down the anger of God. He's a sinless, righteous, holy Savior. And the Bible says that no deceit will ever be found in Jesus' mouth. And just think about that, that picture of the weakness of Moses that is shown to us in this passage that he couldn't finish the job because of his sin and of his weakness. Joshua had to finish the task. God, not only will God never be angry with Jesus, Jesus will never need to appoint another to finish the job on his behalf. With his dying breath, Jesus 
assures us these words. It is finished. It is finished. Our Savior, our great mediator, our great high priest, he finished the work. He finished the job. No one will ever need to take his place. Listen to this comparison in Hebrews 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Our mediator has incomparable glory than the glory we see in the old covenant leader, the representative of the nation, the man Moses. And so how should this affect us? This should affect us that as we fight, as we persevere to the very end, we should remember with faith that we have a great and victorious leader, a great high priest who finished his work of salvation. We have one who cannot fail to bring his people to their eternal rest. What should we do? We should trust him. We should trust in our Savior. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we are your people and we worship you for what you've done for us, God. Your redemptive acts of old. Your redemptive acts in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would That your word and your mighty deeds would kindle faith in our hearts, Lord. Make us a people of trust, a people who lean hard against your word in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.